0: Hi, we are Vintage City Church based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Welcome to our podcast. As a family, we are currently working through the book of Revelation. If you'd like to watch the live video of this teaching, head over to our website at VintageCityChurch.com. With that, let's get started with today's teaching. Last week, we took a look at, Paul, at the, the challenge from uh, Jesus in, in John through John's voice to just be a people that approach what he says with, with an obedience of, of ear and a willingness to hear. And we looked at what it meant to really be hearers. And I don't want to go over that again for the sake of time, uh, but I do want to pick us back up in Revelation 1, 17 through 20, and then we'll read on chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And consider the message to the church of Ephesus. If you would, just to to stay in our practice, would you stand with me right now uh, as we read the scriptures? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one who died. Look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and the grave. So write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen later. This is the meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people and you have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen from your first love. Turn back to me again and work as you did at first. If you don't, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But there there is this about you that is good. You hate the deeds of the immoral Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone who's willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Everyone who's victorious will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. All right, let's take a look at this, this message to the church at Ephesus. Who is this message written to? The first phrase we come across is Angelos or Angelos. Now, that is commonly communicated in English as the angel. But we probably should have a conversation about that because the context of what's being said here in Revelation doesn't make sense for that to be an angel. The word in its root actually means messenger. So more than likely, what... what, we see happening here is this is a direct message to the bishop of that church. One of two bishops stand out. Our best guess is this is either Timothy or Onesimus. So what do we know about Ephesus at this time? Well, here's what we know. At the time of writing, the city itself was about 1,200 years old. It was the current capital of the conquered land It had been made the capital as a gift to keep it from being invaded. So it was an incredibly politically charged environment. There was a lot of, I would say, political manipulation. There was a lot of inner workings to try to to keep peace between the invading Roman Empire and the people of that land. It was full of wealth and opulence. We know that. It was located on a major trade route, as are all seven of these churches that the message comes to. It's interesting, we live, what, 30 miles north of Boulder. Boulder, Colorado, is one of the largest headquarters of occultic religions. It's really interesting for a, for a, for a city that's just not that big. Uh, I think last time I checked, there was over 79 major world religions that would call Boulder home. Ephesus was like that. It was the headquarter for multiple temples and multiple pagan cults. So what can we discern from this message of Jesus to the Ephesian church? There's a couple things that jump out. Number one, the church was fighting a war against immorality and deceptive theology. And the local church was doing a great job at holding that line of the kingdom on these things. As we read this message that we just looked at, what jumps out to me is a statement that Jesus makes and it's staggering. He says, you were doing great at so many things and yet I have something against you And it could cost you your influence and your position. I think that should give us an immediate pause. Jesus is the husband of the church. That language comes through scripture often that that he's the husband, we're the bride of Christ. And in this simple statement, he reveals that as the husband of the church, he holds expectations for how his bride lives and that there actually are consequences for not honoring that desire. I think our our immediate reaction as people is, why wouldn't he be more gracious? Why wouldn't he just be willing to say, hey, you're doing super well in a lot of areas? Thanks for being mostly awesome. Because that is the reality of where they were. They were mostly awesome. Ephesus was a church that was doing amazing at a lot of things. They were righteous in a really pagan culture. They were walking in purity in a very sexually perversed culture. They were standing against sin and bad teaching. They were incredibly philanthropic and and generous. And yet they were lacking something Jesus was looking for. So here's my question on this. Is Jesus demanding perfection? Is he that kind of leader that would be so audacious as to say, hey, you're killing it on all these fronts and you're doing so well, but time out, you're not perfect. No, that is not what's going on here. I would submit that if we are willing to truly consider the syntax of what he says, he's declaring that an aspect they were missing is more important and vital than what they were doing. I want us to understand what this is revealing. There are aspects of how we follow him or aspects of our following of him that matter more than others to him. Which brings us to the question, what were they guilty of? They had left their first love. And his calling this out tells us that this thing, first love, is the priority in this marriage with him. Remember, he's the groom or the bride. First love is one of the things that has to be and must be right. Right? So my question is very simple. What is first love? What is he talking about? So I have some thoughts that I want us to consider as we look at this. He, as our husband, defines what loving him looks like. I just want you to think about that phrase. He, as our husband, defines what loving him looks like. In the Greek text, there is a word used as he enters into this rebuke. Nevertheless is how we would interpret that word. The word is Allah in the Greek. It's an adversarial particle, meaning it kind of means, but but you need to consider this. And that's a that's a vital and important understanding for us to consider because I think these Ephesian believers would have said, we are loving him. They were actively testing false teaching, they were actively confronting false prophets and false apostles. They stood right against immorality. And yet after all of that, and he even says, you're doing these things. He says, but nevertheless, in other words, I need you to pay attention to this thing. And his indictment that they had left their first love tells me that we must not fall into the same trap where we define our own way of loving him. We must follow his lead in how we love him. This word first love, protos agape, the term is an ordinal term in Greek. Now we can take that to mean a couple different things. We could take it to mean first love as in an early thing, something that was there in the beginning. Was Jesus speaking to an emotional condition that was there when they first came to him as in the early days of believing? I think all of us that are in relationships understand that there there is an an early stage, an infatuation stage, a bubbly stage, and as we grow, it's not that we don't love that person the same or more. It's just that it, it morphs and it changes. I don't think that's what he was talking about. We could also take this term, protos, agape, and consider it to mean first love as in highest priority. Was Jesus speaking to it being the most important aspect of following? Well, I think in order to understand that, we have to look at what the rest of scripture says. I wanna take us through three different passages, 1 John 4, John 17, and 1 Corinthians 13. I just wanna talk about these. We don't have time really to read through them and and dissect them at the level that we could. 1 John 4, specifically in verses seven and eight, John declares that God is love. And from this passage, what we understand is that we cannot separate God and love. Meaning when love is true, it is an expression of him. He defines love, not us. I really want us to think about that phrase. He defines love, not us. I want us to take this and consider something that I feel like the Lord taught me in the last month, that when we make a choice in our relationships with others to be unloving, we are actually making a choice to be ungodly because we're taking off his nature. If we go to John 17, there's a concept of first love. It doesn't show up in the phrase first love but it shows up here in John 17 where Jesus is revealing this incredible interconnectivity of his heart and the Father's heart. I just want to read it really quick for us because I think just listening to it is important. Got to go to John, not Luke. Specifically in verse 23, he says this, I in them and you in me, all being perfected into one, then the world will know that you sent me and will understand that you love them as much as you love me. All of a sudden, we, we, we see this nature of the way Jesus and the Father interact. It's loving. He's the first love of the Father. Before creation, he was the love of the Father. I think what he's revealing here is the chief aspect of, of his relationship with the Father is love. And from this passage, I would love to submit that we see a priority on intimacy and connectedness. I think we can easily extrapolate that that there is a priority on our intimacy with him. It is the first and must be the most consistent evidence of our love, just as it is between he and the Father. Let me say it in more native language, our first love affair must be him. It must reveal an intimacy with him. He is to be the focus and the trajectory of his bride. See, often the spiritual and the natural will carry similar principles. So I wanna look at just one of those. In a marriage, uh, the priority principle which um, there's a book that Blynn and I have worked through um, called The Four, Four Laws of Love. And the priority principle says that each party is to hold intimacy with the other as their first and chief priority in life. And often marriages fail because we as a people tend to get caught up in all the secondary things. We tend to see other things as really important. Sometimes we see our relationship with our kids is more important. Other times we see our career advancement is more important. Sometimes we see our ministry at the church is more important. And we tend to justify that, like, hey, I'm a good provider, or, I, or maybe maybe a wife will say, you know, I take care of his world, or maybe people have just settled with, you know, we're, we're good partners in life. You see, from Jesus' perspective, our intimacy with him is to be the top priority of the relationship. And I would say... Intimacy together in a marriage is to be the top priority of a marriage relationship. I don't want to get too tangential in this and go into a marriage teaching, but I think we face an epidemic in our culture right now where people are married and they don't really like each other, and yet they say, I love you. It's not possible to say to someone, I love you, and at the same time say, but I don't like you. And we've bought a lie. And I'll show you why it's not possible. Because love isn't an emotional condition. Love is an active condition. 1 Corinthians 13, verses four through 13. Paul will teach about love. And I, I know that a lot of us know it. Love is patient, love is kind. He, he'll go through this. I think that for the, the sake of time, I, I, I don't want to read it, but I think I need to read it. Because I want us to hear this. Because I think... This definition of love becomes really, really important for us. Pick up in verse 4. Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Before we do that, let's look at one. If I could speak in any language in heaven or on earth, but I didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes on and says, If I could do all these other things, but I didn't have love, it doesn't matter. So he goes to define love and says, love is patient, it's kind, it's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up and never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever, but prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will all disappear. Now we know a little, but even the gift of prophecy reveals little. But when the end comes, these special gifts will disappear. It's like this. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child does. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. And now we see imperfectly perfectly as if in a poor mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me now. There are three things that will endure, faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love. So there's some things that Paul reveals in this passage that I think are really, really, really important. And I want us to just consider them because he's teaching about how the reality that God is love should reveal in our lives in a few really important ways. Number one, without love, all spiritual activity is useless. Just consider that for a second. Without love, all spiritual activity is useless. Think about the things you do, like you show up and you're, you're on the experience team, and, or you're in hospitality, or you're in the tech department, or you're a musician, and you're just a grumpy, not very kind person everywhere else in the world, but you're like, but I serve at church. Paul's statement is, it doesn't actually matter if you don't have love. And Paul will teach in this that love is defined by what it does, not what it feels or says. And I'm going to say that again because it's the most important thing that we can understand about love. Love is defined by what it does, not what it feels or says. And according to Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians, and the reason I'm bringing Paul in, even though we're in Revelation and we're looking at John and we're looking at Jesus' words, is I want us to see the symmetry in the scriptures, that that this wasn't just a a point of view in Revelation. This is actually what all of the apostles would teach. Love is to be our top priority. Love has an activity that validates its existence. And because love is active and it's not passive, please hear that again, because love is active and it's not passive, because love is an action, not a feeling, this first love must reveal in a presentation of how we live towards love others we choose to be patient and kind with those around us i think we could camp on that for a long long time the word patience here macro through my in the greek it literally means a long holding of the mind it means we just don't allow irritability in ourselves we refuse to allow any jealousy in our hearts we refuse to allow ourselves to be arrogant even when it feels justified We refuse to engage in rudeness. In other words, snarkiness, harshness, being uh, nitpicky at people, it's just not allowed according to Paul's teaching. According to Paul's teaching, if we walk in love, we never have to get our way. We never feel the need of, I have to get my way. We're temperate. What's that mean? It means we're just moderate, we're mellow, we're not highly volatile, we're not grumpy or short with others. We don't hold grudges. Or we don't hold wrongs over people's heads. We celebrate truth and we stand against injustice. We refuse to quit in our relationships. We choose to believe the best, always. We refuse to change our loving posture towards anyone. What does it look like to be a people so covered in love that we could say this? No matter how you treat me, I will never change my posture towards you. You see, this is the first priority we're called into. I would submit that any and all ministry is secondary to this. Jesus is looking for this love in his bride. When we're consumed with him, church, we live in his love, and we live loving towards others. When we don't live loving, we're contrary to him because he's love. Can you please grab onto that idea? The Lord whispered that to me about six weeks ago, and it absolutely floored me. When we don't live loving, we're contrary to him because he's love. So, what was his aim for the Ephesian church? They had stopped making him the priority and making how they treated others the focus. They'd stopped doing those things. They were really busy doing the work of ministry, but they forgot the one that it's all about. And they'd become guilty of living in a loveless marriage with him a marriage where there was no intimacy. There's no heat, no passion. We must assess these things in our lives. We must be willing to consider the question, have we left our first love? When we were in our our study team session, one of the things that came out was, in the Greek, the word literally means like laying something down, like letting it go. Could I challenge you? If you let love go towards people, if, you've, if you, you laid it down and you quit actively putting on love towards others, and you have to understand, love is like a jacket that you put on. If I take this coat off and I put it back on, that is the principle. I'm putting on the nature of Jesus to be loving towards others. I don't possess it naturally. None of us do. And the problem is we're waiting to possess our love so natively that it just comes out and it's never gonna come out. You might have moments where you feel the emotional condition of love and those are beautiful, but that's not love. The word agape in its root means to live for the benefit of another. Real love means I put on his nature for the benefit of others. Last Sunday of the year, I wanna just deeply challenge us. Maybe you were here this morning And this is just hit you between the eyes and you're like, I have been so unloving. I want you to connect the parallels. You can't live unloving towards others and say you're still in love with Jesus. It doesn't work. If you're in love with him, it has to reveal towards others. We're gonna have teams up front. Prayer teams will be with us. If you're just in a spot where you're like, I need to repent. I've been so not loving. What a great time of year to do that. What a great time of year to say, you know what? I'm gonna get to be around people. I'm gonna get to be rubbing shoulders with family and friends. I wanna put on love and reveal my love for him and how I handle others. All right, bow your heads with me, please. Holy Spirit, we just simply ask you. Lord, even in this moment as I teach it, there's just such a sense of your heart for this house that we'd put aside the foolishness of our arrogance and our pride and our own way. Lord, I love Pastor Derry at Timberline. I love his, his phrase, let love live. So we're crying out, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in us of love that's fresh, that's new. That as we push into intimacy with you, we'd also push in to an outward love towards others. We bless you, we honor you, Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Thank you for your time with us. If you can, we would love to have you join us at a live gathering. We are located at 1501 Academy Court in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about Vintage City Church, including our gathering times, previous teachings, and how to become a part of our family, Visit us today at VintageCityChurch.com or connect with us on social media.